I've titled this sermon, For Whom is the Lord Waiting? For Whom is the Lord Waiting? And just by way of review, Peter has been defending the doctrine of Christ's second coming. He's been fact-checking these false teachers who have tried to cause the church to doubt Christ's return. Because if Christ does not return, then there is no judgment. And so in each chapter so far, Peter has brought to bear the fact that the day of the Lord, the day of Christ, the day of judgment, will indeed come. But as we come to verses 8 through 10 of chapter 3, we come to a pivotal point. Peter has not yet answered the question, why? Why the delay in Christ's return? For what, or better yet, for whom is the Lord waiting? The question of chapter 3, verse 4, where is the promise of his coming, needs a direct answer. And here we have a direct answer. Really what we have is a direct finger pointing to God. In verses 8 through 10, Peter says that there are three attributes of God that you need to know so that you will be confident that the day of the Lord will come. So let's dive in. Number one, God is timeless. God is timeless. Verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Peter is alluding to Psalm 90, Psalm 90. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Peter is saying, don't forget the scripture that speaks of our God's timelessness. Charles Hodge describes God's timelessness this way. With God, there is no distinction between past, present, and future, but all things are equally and always present to him. All of time is before him always. God has complete possession of life, of time, and eternity, all in a single moment. And what's the point? The point is this. God's interaction with time is entirely different from ours. God does not live in time as we do. We are bound by time. He is not, and therefore he's not being slow. He's not delaying. He sees everything in a moment. And the fact that God stands above time means that when he says something will happen, it's not a good guess. It's because he's there. The day of the Lord is certain because God is already there. The day of the Lord is present to him now. Now, what are the implications of God's timelessness regarding the day of judgment? Well, for one, we can know for certain that every sin ever committed in human history will be punished. God does not need to try to remember what sins have been committed. They are still before his eyes and they always will be. And this is why any sin committed against an eternal God merits an eternal punishment. Any sin committed against God is cosmic treason and worthy of everlasting torment. Everlasting, eternal. Jonathan Edwards said this, It would be dreadful to suffer this fierceness and wrath of Almighty God 
one moment, but you must suffer it to all eternity. There will be no end to, to this exquisite, horrible misery. When you look forward, you shall see a long forever, a boundless duration before you, which will swallow up your thoughts and amaze your soul, and you will absolutely despair of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any rest at all. You will know certainly that you must wear out long ages, millions of millions of ages in wrestling and conflicting with this almighty, merciless vengeance. And then, when you have so done, when so many ages have actually been spent by you in this manner, you will know that all is but a point to what remains, so that your punishment will indeed be infinite. And I don't know how any of you can rest one moment knowing that that is your condition. How careless have countless men been in regards to their soul. They choose the fleeting pleasures of sin to the ruin of their eternal soul. But what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This God is timeless and eternal, and he's not delaying. He's on his own timeline. But the question remains, why hasn't the Lord returned yet? Doesn't he see the wickedness of this world? What can a holy God possibly be waiting for? We are no better than Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, we are far worse. And so why hasn't he brought his judgment yet? There's only one reason. There's only one reason. God is patiently saving. God is patiently saving. Verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, in verse 9, we have just set foot in a theological arena. This verse, though it says nothing explicit about the atonement of Christ, is often used to support what is called universal atonement. This doctrine teaches that the extent of the atonement of Christ reaches to all men without exception. Christ, they say, died for every person who ever lived. They claim that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God on the cross for everyone, including those who are now suffering the wrath of God in hell. They distinguish between the extent of the atonement, that is, for whom did Christ die, and the application of it, that is, who actually ends up saved. I recently heard a well-known Christian teacher say, Christ has reconciled the world to God. Now give your life to Christ so that you can actually be reconciled to God. And I'm honestly still trying to figure out in what sense has the world been reconciled to God. The claim is that though Christ bore the wrath of God for every individual who's ever lived, it is the sinner's faith that activates or actualizes the saving power of the cross. Jesus' death then only provides the opportunity to be saved. His death didn't actually secure the salvation of anyone. That part is up to you. Theoretically, in this system, it is possible for Christ's death to avail for no one, for no one to be saved. And in keeping with the sense of fairness, there is no difference in the amount of grace given to you than those countless souls in hell. In this system, man's decision to believe and not the cross of Christ is the determinative cause of salvation. One commentator wrote about this text, 
It is clear that if God has his way, that is, if, if God's purpose in salvation was not continually being thwarted by the unbelief of man, no one would come under condemnation. God's will may not be done, but it will not be for lack of trying on his part. God's trying. If you ever find yourself uttering those words, you may be wrong. Is God really just trying his best but failing to save? Is God's omnipotent will being thwarted by the unbelief of man? No. Job 42, 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now the argument goes like this. Because the Lord is not willing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance, it must be the case that the Son of God atoned for the sins of all mankind, that is, for all people, without exception. Now, it's not my intention at this time to defend the doctrine of particular redemption or definite atonement, but what I would like to do is to equip you. I want to show you that at the very least, this particular verse does not support a universal atonement, but just the opposite. And in so doing, we will see Peter's intent for this text. But before I do, I want to acknowledge right at the outset that God certainly does not take delight in seeing wicked men perish. He does not take pleasure in that. Ezekiel 18, 23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? God is not a tyrant. He is good and generous and slow to anger, and he is kind to the wicked. He sends the sun and rain without partiality. He gives good gifts and strength and wealth and happiness indiscriminately in this life. He delights in being generous to all men. That's our God, and that's a glory to him. And we are to bend that same disposition out to all men without partiality. Now, this kind and generous disposition toward all men is often called the optative will of God. Optative meaning to express a wish. And it's true that God does not wish for anyone to perish. And when they do, his disposition is not one of delight in their ruin. The Lord genuinely cries out, Why will you die, O house of Israel? Turn and live. In God, there is a genuine disposition of goodwill toward all men. But at the same time, God has not sovereignly decreed to save all men. God is not obligated by a sense of fairness or justice to save anyone. On the contrary, justice cries out for the condemnation of every man. Now the Lord has sovereignly decreed all things. Whatever transpires in time and space has been decreed by God, including the salvation of the elect. And this sovereign decree is known as his decree of will, And the question is this, is God not willing for any to perish in the optative sense, which is an impotent wishing, or is God not willing for any to perish in the decretive sense, that is to say that none of those for whom he wills to save will perish? And I believe it's the latter. Now, I've limited myself to give only five reasons to suggest that Peter is referring to God's elect alone in this verse. There's many more. But unlike the Lord, I am bound by time. Here are five reasons. Number one, the word you. 
the word you. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you. And here's the key. Who is the you? Who is Peter writing to? Well, look at the introduction. To those who have received the same kind of faith as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter is writing to the recipients of the faith that has been earned by Jesus Christ. Faith is a gift that is to be received. Verse 3, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Peter is writing to those who are called, to those who have been given everything pertaining to eternal life and godliness, which must necessarily include repentance and faith. God has given everything to his elect. This is clear in Scripture. Romans 8.32 he, he who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God gave the greatest thing, his son, will he fail to give anything less, namely the faith that is needed to receive him? If God gave his son, how will he not also give those for whom Christ died that which would secure their sure possession of the salvation which Christ accomplished on their behalf, namely repentance and faith? We just sung this. There is no more for heaven now to give. Peter is writing to those who have received faith, and by implication, he's writing to those who will in due time receive the same kind of faith as theirs. The you of verse 9 is the elect of God. Now, what does this mean for our passage? Well, it makes perfect sense. God is waiting for all his elect to come to Christ. When that happens, there'll be no more need to wait to bring his promised judgment. The day of the Lord will come once all of God's elect are saved. And therefore, the any and the all of verse 9 must only be those within the group called you. Peter writes as if God has not yet failed to save any of this group, and I don't think any in this group have perished yet. All of the elect will be saved, and then the judgment will come. The Lord is sovereignly unwilling to have it any other way. That's number one. Number two, the context. The context. This interpretation makes great sense in light of the context. In chapter 2, verse 5 of Second Peter, God waited for Noah to build a boat, and then the flood came on the rest of the earth. In chapter 2, verse 6, God waited for Lot to get out of the city, and then the judgment came on Sodom and Gomorrah. He was not willing for his own to perish, but waited and then brought the judgment. Go back to our text, chapter 3, verse 8 through 10, and look at the verse right before verse 8. The present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Now, does God know who will go into this fire? Yes, he's eternal. He's above time. He's, he's at the judgment already. He sees all the souls who will suffer in hell presently. He's not waiting to see who will repent and hoping for the best. No, the Father is waiting to save in relative time all those whom he chose to save from eternity past. This is the same group 
as those for whom the Son died. And it's the same group as those to whom the Spirit will apply the benefits of Christ's death in due time. If we take the other view, we have to admit that God's plan isn't very good. Lord, are you aware that it's a broad road to destruction and many find it? Look, I know you are, you are trying your best, I know you have good intentions, but you are failing to save all people, let alone most people. And the longer you wait, the more people will perish. But it makes perfect sense if we see this as the elect alone, because this view says, Lord, you intended to save your elect, and they will certainly be saved, every last one of them. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You died for your sheep, and you won't lose one. Number three the broader context of the day of the Lord. Question, what is the purpose of the rapture of the church? 1 Thessalonians 1.10, to be rescued from the wrath to come. To not experience the wrath of God in the day of the Lord, that is the purpose of the rapture. Once all of the elect of the church are saved, the trumpet will sound and we will be with the Lord as his wrath is being poured out on this earth and then we come back with him as he establishes his kingdom after that. Now what about the elect in the tribulation? God will keep them from his wrath as well. Revelation 6, the martyrs cry out, O sovereign Lord, Holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? In other words, when are you going to pour out your wrath on this earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. There is a certain number of the elect who through the means of martyrdom will be spared from God's wrath, once that exact number is complete, his wrath will be poured out. And you say, what about the elect nation of Israel? Romans eleven twenty five, A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. God knows the number of his elect throughout the nations, and he's waiting until it's full, and then Israel will be saved. And though Israel will go through the tribulation, even then they won't experience God's wrath. Revelation 7. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the slaves of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those having been sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. God will place a special seal of protection from his wrath on 12,000 souls from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. No more and no less. God has his own that he will keep from experiencing his wrath. Why? Because Christ has borne that wrath for them already. And for the elect to experience just one drop of that wrath would make God unjust. And so God will make sure that none of his elect will experience that wrath. The Lord is not willing for any of them to perish by his wrath. That is the context of this perishing Perishing in verse 9 is not dying, but suffering God's wrath on the day of judgment. God is not willing for any of his elect to experience that wrath which has already been born for them by Christ. That's number three. Number four, the word will. The word will in verse 9. Some look at the word will in verse 9 and they say, Look, 
This is the word pulamai in the Greek, which means to desire or to wish. And they say this is describing what God only wishes would happen, but really won't happen. Well, I encourage you to do a word study on this. You'll find that every single time this word is used with, in reference to God, there is no indication that somehow God's desire or intention or will might be thwarted. It's just the opposite. I'll give you some examples. Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. This is Christ. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. 1 Corinthians twelve eleven. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. James 1, 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Not once, when this word is used with reference to God, does it imply that the will of God might somehow be thwarted by man. God is patiently waiting because it's his decretive, effectual will, not an impotent wish, that none of those for whom Christ died should perish, but all of them will certainly brought be, to be brought to repentance and be saved. Bulamai, in this verse, is an omnipotent intention that will certainly come to pass. Number five, just call this one God. I don't know what else to call it. God wills for all of this group to come to repentance. Repentance. Well, who gives repentance? God. God is the one who opens the heart to respond to the gospel in repentance and faith. James 1.18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. It is up to the will of God whether a sinner is born again when he hears the gospel. God is not in the least restrained by our sin. We have a Savior who has made amends for all of our weakness, all of our sin, including our unbelief and spiritual deadness and hardness of heart. Now, there are those who say that a God of love surely wouldn't intrude in our free wills because he wants us to freely love him and freely choose him. And I understand the desire to want to protect the attribute of God's love. But we can't sacrifice God's absolute sovereignty in salvation on the altar of his love or on the altar of man's free will. The Son of God gives life to whomever he wills. Whom the Son sets free, he is free indeed. We have a Savior who loves us so much that he did not leave us to our own sin-enslaved wills. That's love. And just think, what if this verse is not referring to the elect? That means that God knows who would have come to repentance after the door of mercy had been shut. What if the Lord knew that a thousand souls would come to repentance the next day? What about a hundred? What about fifty? Ten? Or one precious soul would have been saved if he had just waited what would have been for him like one second. Listen, you don't do justice to God's love like you think you do in this system. Wouldn't love wait 10,000 years for just one more to come to everlasting life? I believe it would. But that is not the case. The reality is this. Once all of the elect are saved, there won't be any more who would have come to repentance. Any and all of them will have already come, and there's no more need to wait. Listen, Christ is no frustrated 
Savior. He's not just doing the best he can with what he's got. Such a view of Christ diminishes the glory of his cross. He has secured every providence and every grace needed to bring the elect to himself. This is what the new covenant is all about. Christ purchased with his blood the promise that God will transform the hearts of his people to believe. Ezekiel 36, 26. Here's what Christ earned on the cross. This covenant blessing. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Christ purchased our new heart on that cross. And God will give that blood-earned, believing heart to his people in his own timing. Jeremiah 24, 7. I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord. They will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. Repentance and faith is God's to give, for he is the Lord. And were it not for this effectual grace, giving me a new heart, I would have never chosen Christ over my sin. Hebrews 9.15 He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. All those for whom Christ died will receive this inheritance. They will believe in him. Look at John chapter 10, verse 15. Jesus said, I lay down my life for the sheep. And then he turns to the Pharisees in verse 26 and says, but you do not believe. Why? Because you're not of my sheep. He didn't say, you're not my sheep because you don't believe, as if believing activates your transformation into a sheep. No, all who are Christ's sheep will certainly come to believe. Why? Look at the next verse. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, ever, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Verse 16, and I have other sheep which are not from this fold, I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. If Jesus wanted to make it more clear that he gave his life for his sheep only, and that he will certainly save them, and that there are those for whom he did not die, how else could he have said it? How does Christ know that these sheep will come to believe in him? Because faith is his to give. The saving power of the cross is not activated by your faith. Your faith flows from the saving power of the cross. Christ did not die upon the condition that sinners may or may not believe. He died for them that they will certainly come to believe. Why am I stressing this doctrine so much? Is it because I want to celebrate the fact that there are those for whom Christ did not die? No. I want to guard the cross from any idea that would rob Christ of his all-sufficient atoning work for sinners like me. One of my favorite hymns, The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. It's this doctrine that Christ died for his bride in particular, that makes the cross so precious and sweet. 
For those who are in Christ by grace alone, we can sing, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. We can rejoice with Paul to have a Savior who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ did not do for those countless souls in hell what he's done for his bride. And he will order all things to make sure that his sheep come into possession actually, experientially, and eternally of that for which he died. I don't need a cross that requires my sin-loving will to activate it. I need a cross that actually transforms my dead heart. I need a cross that makes me new. And praise God, that's what we have. We have a Savior who has done everything for us. It is finished. Now, if all the elect were already saved, there would be no need to delay the judgment. Yet because the Father sovereignly decreed to save his own through the cross, he waits patiently for all of that very group to come in due time to Christ by his grace. And this means that the judgment of the wicked is stayed temporarily because of the elect. But that judgment will come. Why? Because number three, God is a consuming fire. God is a consuming fire. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and its works that are done on it will be exposed. Now the day of the Lord is the terrifying intervention of God, namely Christ, in this world for the purpose of judgment. And this judgment comes to the world in two stages. The first is at the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation. Revelation 6. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, there we go. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able? To stand? Answer, no one. No one. No one will have any strength to stand against the Lord Jesus Christ on the day that he comes in his wrath. I've heard people say, well, if I go to hell, I go to hell. I'll deal with it. What a trifling view of God's power. Sinner, you cannot bear it. Your heart will not be strong on the day the Lord rises up. The very God who gives strength to the hearts of men will remove it completely from the wicked on that day. And their resolve will melt, and their strength will dissolve under the mighty hand of God. The same hand that holds up the universe without any effort is the hand that will show itself strong against its enemies. The mountains and oceans and sun and stars and galaxies are consumed in a moment. It is utter foolishness to think that you can bear or withstand the day of Christ's wrath when he brings his judgment. You won't just deal with it. Now there's another day 
in which divine judgment will break in on the earth, and that is at the end of Christ's thousand-year reign. Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. This is also the day of the Lord. After Christ undoes creation, he brings final and irreversible judgment on Satan and demons and all unbelievers. And then comes a new heavens and a new earth. Can you imagine this scene? Earth and sky flees from his presence. All of creation is undone. All that man has accomplished in this world is gone. All their pleasures, gone. And now they must face the very God whom they have rejected and despised all their lives. And they will be judged. Every careless word, every evil thought, every deed they've ever done will have been found to have fallen short of God's holiness, and they will know that the door of mercy has been shut forever. And now all that is left is for the books to be opened. And all their ungodly deeds, every secret, everything will be exposed, and they will be cast into the lake of fire forever in a place of eternal conscious torment. That's the day of the Lord. And it will come, and it will come like a thief. It will come like a thief. First Thessalonians 5 For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman who is pregnant and they will never escape. Man thinks that just because there's an apparent absence of immediate divine judgment in this world that all will continue just as it's always been that God won't pour out his wrath on them or bring them into judgment. And they boldly carry out the sinful desires of their heart day after day. And look, no judgment, no fire, no hell. Where is he? Well, he must not be coming. Peace and safety. We can continue in our sin without guilt because that day is not coming. Wrong. The day of the Lord will come, and it will come like a thief. That's the beginning. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. This is the culmination of the day of the Lord that we saw in Revelation 20. God's fire will be so hot that hot doesn't begin to describe it. God's fire will burn up the sun. And just think, God's not even angry with the sun. The sun and moon and stars and planets, everything will be consumed. And the display of such power from God to undo all the universe in a moment ought to produce fear and awe. When you think of this power, it should humble you. It should cause you to tremble before this God. The present heavens and the earth 
will pass away. They will go out of existence by this consuming fire, but the souls in hell won't get that luxury. God will get everything out of the way, and then those who are outside of Christ will be brought, utterly exposed before a holy God. There's no hiding from this judgment. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Every deed, every word, every thought will be exposed to God's searing judgment. This present earth will fade away. All that was important to man will burn up. And the world will find out too late what actually mattered in this life, which is Christ and their eternal soul. Peter would have us know for certain that this day is coming. And so how should we respond? Joel chapter 2. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Awesome as in dreadful and terrifying. And who can endure it? Answer, no one. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. The day of the Lord is coming, so repent. Repent. There's no hiding from this judgment except to be in Christ. Turn from your sin and run to Christ, and you will be saved in the day of his wrath. You say, what if I'm not his elect? What if I'm not a sheep? If you repent and believe in Christ, you are his sheep, and the kingdom of heaven is yours. Hebrews 12, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. His voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this expression, yet once more, indicates the removing of those things which can be shaken, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire, and he will shake, as it were, the heavens and the earth, and he will do that to show what cannot be shaken, and that is the kingdom of God and the redeemed who will walk in that kingdom. And so if you are in Christ the King, rejoice and give thanks and live for him. And here's my encouragement to you. Say to those with an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. He will save you. His purpose cannot be thwarted. Your Savior, your great high priest, bore your name on his shoulders, and he made a perfect sacrifice on your behalf, and you will surely receive everything that he has earned for you both now and for eternity. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. How then ought you to live? That's the question that Peter will address next time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what glorious truths we have heard this morning. We have such a Savior who has finished his saving work on that cross. He actually purchased our redemption and secured our sure possession of it. Thank you for Christ, our great high priest, who bore our names in particular on that cross. He knew his own. He knew every soul for whom he was dying. And if he saved us by his death, 
how much more will we certainly come into possession of that salvation by his life? You, O Lord, are altogether glorious in what you've done for sinners like us. We who are so undeserving of this kindness and grace, we ought to despair of ever having any hope at all. But because of Christ, you can now look upon us and see Christ, our righteousness, our pardon. Our life is hidden with him. And all those for whom you died will certainly be saved from the wrath to come. May we live as those who know how great a Savior we have in Jesus Christ, whoever lives and pleads for us. May we rejoice and glory in the Son, and in so doing be more conformed into his image, until we see him face to face, to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen.